Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Makeshift COO and co-founder Pablo Eder, Makeshift, a crowdfunding platform founded in 2018 with the mission of helping the world transition to the creator economy. Pablo has many years of experience in science, engineering, and business, having launched multiple startups. He's a Mexican-German who had lived most of his early life in Mexico. He immigrated to Canada on a startup visa with goals of launching his entrepreneurial career while attending school in Ontario. Pablo had a desire to become an entrepreneur from a very young age, His first venture launched in 2013 was a 3D printing software automation company called Lani. From there, Pablo started Dorada Consulting, a firm focused on machine learning and blockchain. In 2018, he began his third venture, Bounty, a crowdfunding platform for influencers to fund content ideas. Pablo joined Makeshift as a co-founder in 2019 and is now the chief operating officer. He manages the company's design, operations, and technology teams in his free time, Pablo loves to go for bike rides or rock climbing. Pablo is also fluent in English, German, and Spanish. Pablo, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Hi, Cameron. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you've got a really, really intriguing background um, from, you know, clearly like the Mexico, the German component, the, um, the so you bring in like European and, and Latin America side. But then where were you at school in Ontario? Were you at like... I went to Waterloo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Waterloo is and for any of our American friends. Waterloo would be like the the Stanford of tech in Canada. So you were a techie from an early age, then. Yeah, I think so. I, I when I was fifteen, I was spending a lot of time repairing computers, and that's how I would make some money. So yeah, I, I think I've always been a big techie. Okay, and then you've had a couple of um, of businesses that you built along the way that brought you to where you are now. What do you think some of the lessons were from from a couple of your your first businesses? What lessons did you kind of glean there that you carry with you today? Yeah, I, I think from my my first business, I wasn't I wasn't asking enough from my customers. Like customers would would ask me to do a lot of things, and I would stretch myself very thin because I, I didn't know how to set up boundaries, um, and I didn't know how to like ask for more money. I I, I was I think like nineteen or twenty. Um, and I think that I, I wasn't really, really sure about how to find the right product market fit where customers actually really want your product. Um, so the dynamics really change versus when people really don't want your product and you're willing to do more. So I think, I think from my first startup, I learned that. Um, and from the following startups, I learned a little bit more about, you know, unit economics, hiring people, that kind of stuff, more, more operational stuff. Interesting on the whole, um, you know, having boundaries and saying no and asking for more money. Like I've never actually heard anyone say that. And you're, you're, you're bang on with that. Can you, can you kind of give us some examples of when you should have said no or when you should have created more boundaries, what that means? Yeah. I had a client that, uh, was one of our first customers. So they kept requesting more and more personalized, um, software solutions. And at some point I said, well, for us to really be able to afford that, we have to charge you this much. And they, they, they said, no, you're, you're crazy. We're not paying you that much. Um, and I still went ahead and, and developed the features because I said it's so important for us to have uh, this large client. Um, and it ended up being a bad idea. Like r- right now, the way I see it is I'd rather have 
you know, 10 small clients that one client that is 10 times their size. Um, because out of those 10, you learn a lot more and you learn what, you know, uh, what all those 10 want in common is the real value of your company versus someone else treating you kind of like a consultant. Some, if someone else treats you like a consultant, they're just going to re request something that is like truly specific to their problem. Like the problem solution is really, truly specific versus if you get 10 customers that are smaller, um, you really understand what's valuable about what you're offering. I, I love when you're you're kind of giving that explanation of these clients that are asking for more. And then when you tell them the price, they run away. I've said for years that, you know, Microsoft could have built Microsoft Excel with maybe 50 features and that could have been it forever. And we all would have been perfectly fine with it. Like 99.9% .9 of the people, that's all we ever needed. But I'm sure they've got thousands of people still working on Microsoft Excel doing shit that no one actually ever needs. Exactly. And I think it's probably a, a consequential to the first thing. It's like now, now Microsoft Excel is so big and so useful that they have to have every feature because they, they, they need to cover every single business case. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because it scales so well, right? Like they build this feature, it, it will grow to the next 10 versions of Microsoft. In fact, they don't even sell you by versions, right? You buy it as a subscription. Right. So, so now you're committed to, to the features in a way that it would be difficult for for a competitor, but that, that's why the competitors don't even focus on the features. They focus a lot more in compatibility, many users working at the same time, that kind of stuff. They, they just tackle a different angle and customer type. So what kind of a decision filter do you use or, or process do you use to know when to listen to the customer and, and take their suggestions and run with them or when to listen to the customer and say, thank you, but we're not taking those. Like, how do you, how do you decide? I think really money. Um, there's this like startup <laughs> concept of like um, being really guerrilla style when it comes to uh, requesting features. So uh, instead of saying, would you like this feature, which inevitably says yes, uh, you really ask, what is what is the problem that you're currently having and how can this solution solve it better? And then you say, okay, we can solve this problem at this price point. Um, and then they can really argue whether or not they want it. There, there was this uh, lesson from... Um, who was it? I believe it was Stripe who was asking people, uh, would you like to use our software? And whenever they said yes, they would immediately charge them and install it on their computers personally. They would say, can you pass me your laptop? Um, and that type of like really aggressive, okay, let, let's let's really prove if you're interested by charging you or by interacting immediately with it um, and cornering you in that way, uh, I think gives you really good results because it kind of it kind of is the opposite of like the mom test where you know like your mom will always love everything you make right but if you actually ask people to to use it they, they, they might change their minds or, or to charge more importantly can i i've i've um i've been to 62 countries i've i've been to 34 countries in the last four and a half years i feel like a complete idiot when i travel the world because i only speak english and i can speak french like a toddler I want to ask you a question that I, I hope you receive it in the right way because I'm quite intrigued. You're really smart, um, and in, in Latin America, I'm a moron. Like I run through through you know everything south of Mexico. They only speak Spanish, with the exception of Brazil, where they speak you know Portuguese. But you've got an accent, and North Americans have a heavy bias. How do you work around that bias to quickly show them that the accent means nothing? That you have the intellect and the capacity and the like. How do you get by that and what lessons can you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because it doesn't always work, right? <laughs> there's, I think there's certain circles uh, where they uh, see foreigners kind of like a, as a positive, you know, like in Waterloo, 
um, they had very smart people as international students. Yeah. So they associated accents with kind of like being smart. Uh, but when I go to other places, I get treated very differently. Um, Spanish is also an interesting one. There's not that many um, Mexicans in Canada versus in the U.S. Right. So again, Canadians don't assume that my accent has the same implications as in the U.S. or in California. So uh, I don't know how to get around it, honestly. I, I think that, um, yeah, I've had definitely bad experiences. I've definitely had good experiences. And it's definitely uh, something that people identify you by um, and something that people notice and point out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I, I think I think like anything else, people will treat you in a certain way and you have to learn to prove them differently if, if it's a negative connotation. Because I'll, I'll tell you what I'm learning in Europe is in Europe, everybody has an accent to everybody else because there's right. so many different like it doesn't matter which coffee shop you're in you're hearing four other languages constantly so you're always hearing there's there's no kind of normal ontario accent or normal <laughs> you know chicago accent like that doesn't exist um when you went to school at waterloo and how many years ago was that that you were there a decade um i i got there yeah 12 years ago 2010 okay so when you were when you left there and were kind of starting out into your business career, what did what did you pull out of that classic kind of tech education that you still use to you know today in your in your role? And then I want to want you to talk to me a little bit about Makeshift as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I think Waterloo is a really good school for uh, coming up with ideas and trying things out. Um, I think what what makes it different is that um, you have co ops, so you have to work. Um, every every four months or, or or something like that, you have to work at a company or or do something, um, and I think that really teaches you to get really good at building things or testing things. So I, I think what I learned from Waterloo was really kind of just just go out and try it type mentality, and and that's obviously very useful for startups. Um, as, as startups get bigger and bigger into more more mature companies, it becomes a little bit less useful and almost in some cases bad. <laughs> like there's certain lessons that I have to like kind of like unlearn um, or, or certain things that I have to like change, I guess. Um, but it's very useful, you know, sub 20 employees. It's very useful. Yeah, it makes sense. Did you hire out of that um, Waterloo today? Like, is that something you lean back on and you look for that as a pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we, we hire very strongly from Waterloo. My, my co-founder went to Queens. So I would say that Waterloo and Queens are probably our two top hires just because of the people you know, right? At, at the beginning, yeah. a startup hires based on your network and and that's why you end up hiring a lot like that was he queen's engineering yeah i've hired i hired a lot of people i actually hired kimball musk out of queen's engineering uh elon's brother <laughs> in 1993 for real i hired him i hired him in 1993 uh to work for me at college pro painters and i hired his cousin who built peter reeve, uh, peter reeve who built solar city also um uh, yeah it makes sense yeah elon went to queen's as well right i think yeah. physics yeah yeah they're wickedly smart so you got involved in the blockchain at a time when blockchain wasn't that sexy, you know, I mean, it was sexy in terms of it being tech, but nobody knew what the hell it was in 2017, 18. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that I saw a lot of interesting things just because I, I got into blockchain, you know, in 2012 or 2013. I can remember one of those years, um, my roommate, who used to be my boss at some point, but he was my roommate at the time. Um, we, we decided to really get into crypto and, and we turn off the, the furnace in winter, which you can imagine is a crazy decision. And instead we put miners, like Bitcoin miners, um, in the basement, just producing the heat. Um, uh, we still have the furnace for certain temperatures, but we're able to kind of like lo lower the minimum temperature. 
Um, and that was a really cool experience, right? Because I got into Bitcoin when it was like $30 per, per Bitcoin. Um, I, I, I got out when it was like not very expensive, maybe $1,000. <laughs> so I, I never really, really sold it for like millions of dollars. But I thought it was crazy that we, it went from $30 to $1,000. Um, and then from that experience, what I saw kind of like the next generation with Ethereum and, 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 and you know, like distributed computing um, with crypto was a lot of people uh, developing interesting applications. And the, the interesting one in 2017 was a lot of companies were trying to um, diversify or fundraise um, utilizing those, those ICOs, which I thought was a very, very interesting concept and, mm. and very great area. You know, like a lot of them, uh, you, you could really argue uh, around securities and regulation. So I was very interested. And the first thing I, I, I did was like, um, I, I set up a lot of meetings with securities lawyers. So um, when I was doing consulting, I was working with tons of, of law firms around securities, both uh, obviously in the US and Canada. Canada is tricky because provincially securities are, reg the, the regulation of securities done provincially as opposed to federally. Um, so I had to work with a lot of those, uh, but I thought it was really interesting. I, I thought there were two like big database moments in 2017, one of them being blockchain, another one, uh, a lot of companies were trying to like figure out, is there an AI play with, with our large data sets? So they were either trying to make their data more open through blockchain and, and find a solution there, or they were trying to make it a little bit more, more processed and algorithmic through AI. So, so I, I thought they were very interesting concepts. So, yeah. It's intriguing, interesting. So, and have you ever decided to get back into Bitcoin since the the thousand dollar moment? Um, I mean, obviously, then there was like NFTs and what's going on with that. Which I, I mean, they're very old. Like in twenty seventeen, we're we're also already looking at those those types of uh, uh, non fungible contracts. But um, I I think it's interesting from the perspective that there's a lot of smart people working on it, but I still haven't found applications that I find are practical enough or interesting enough for me to be like, okay, there's something really extremely valuable here. I think when I was doing consulting, I was doing it mostly just as a result of trying something new and, and figuring out why are so many people interested in, in this, um, in Ethereum and why are people so interested in what's going on with the centralized applications. Um, but when it comes to, when it comes to like me personally, I, I just haven't used it yet, right? Like I, I don't use any applications with crypto. I still find it super cool from the perspective of sending um, value around the world. I, I still think that there's this interesting gap where there's no efficient way of sending someone like $2. Yeah. You know? like, like I cannot send you $2 in any practical way. It's always going to cost more than $2 um, or sub $2. So yeah, I think there's something there in terms of like humans uh, moving value around and, and that value being decentralized. But I'm very skeptical about whether or not crypto can really scale and, and remain decentralized. Interesting. I, I love that you're playing in such huge areas. And we actually had uh, the second in command for blockchain.com as a guest on our um, second in command podcast nice. as well. I'll have to send you the link to his episode. It's interesting. So it's interesting that you're playing and thinking in such a big area. How do you prevent or or allow that thought to to stay within the business that you're building? And how do you restrain yourself to stay focused on what needs to get done? Like, how do you pull yourself down from that 30,000 foot level to the, you know, let's get shit done as well. Yeah, I, I think naturally I'm very, let's get shit done um, type person. And, and the other part is kind of more like philosophical, like kind of like what I find cool. Um, so it's like one, one part of you is like, I find this cool. And another part of you is like, oh shit, in order to move to the next step, I have to do this. Again, these this are the type of stuff that I'm actually trying to like unlearn now. 
because we're, we're getting to like about 70 employees on makeshift and i kind of just get shit done now <laughs> because because the the company requires so much structure and so many decisions being made and so instead i have to like learn how to like you know pass pass tasks to other people decentralize scope better um all this like organizational stuff that i never really did so yeah i, I think right now it's more like going back into like strategy and vision and less into like getting stuff done so i'm actually trying to like unlearn getting stuff done just because it's causing other issues you know like it's it's tricky yeah okay tell us tell us a bit about makeshift and um and also give us some of the scope in terms of like the size of the organization how many people are we working with etc yeah like i said we're, we're about 70 people what's interesting is that we were only two people at the beginning of 2020 um and we pretty much did all of that without fundraising or like without a significant amount of fundraising at all um, so we're one of the few companies in Canada that we, we grew like 40x in less than three years um, without out, outside funding. So uh, I, 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 I find that to be rare and, and especially rare in a company like ours, which I guess I haven't described, but Makeshift makes uh, physical products for typical, typically influencers and uh, video game studios. And the, way, the reason we work with them is that we, we find them to be a super, super fascinating market because they have this interesting problem where when you post a video on youtube or a video game on, on on steam you have super super interesting unit economics where you don't know how many people are gonna download your game so it could be one person or a million people and uh, you don't know how many people are gonna watch your instagram post or your youtube video it could be one or a million and the platforms will not charge you more money if it's one or a million so you have like in some way like infinite supply and on on demand so because you have these like insane market dynamics where, you know, the, the, the demand supply curve never really crossed in this traditional sense or, or you, you don't know what to expect. Um, you don't know your ability to sell product is very difficult. And you're typically a team of one or two. So you, you have this like super small niche team with insane unit, unit economics that wants to make a physical product. Well, good luck. Like it's super hard because if, if you try to manufacture it, you have to go to some sort of factory, order the units, put them in a warehouse. Um, and, and again, you don't know how many units you're going to sell. So what Makeshift is trying to solve is giving, giving creators, especially emerging independent you know, thinkers, an ability to make products as if they were a large team. So we're trying to like maximize what they're capable of doing that. And the only solution that we figure to, to make this into something where we can de-risk it is through crowdfunding. So essentially, you launch a product on Makeshift, Makeshift makes it, designs it, um those customer support logistics we don't charge you for it um obviously we, we pay you a percentage of the revenue generated and we handle everything but the trick is that we have we launched them as crowdfunding campaigns so they may fail and a lot of our campaigns fail and that's okay it's, it's part of the business model but essentially it allows you to to test out a product and a market um which influencers really enjoy because again they have this really really interesting dynamics what kind of products are we talking about here? Like digital products, physical products? Oh, like we mostly do plush toys. <laughs> I know it's all the only, I'm holding a plush toy right now. Okay. Um, but yeah, we mostly do plush toys is one of our main products. We're going to launch two more products soon. Um, and the reason it's plush toys is not random. I actually joined the company a little bit later. I, I joined it after a year. Um, Rakan, Rakan was, you know, working, Rakan, my co-founder and CEO. Um, he was working a lot with influencers and kind of like launching every imaginable product. And one of the main things that I did when I joined Makeshift was to focus us. So we went from 40 products we were offering to one. 
And the reason for that is that it's a lot easier to scale when 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 you have a, a single uh, type of product. Um, and and that's what our main focus is right now. But but that's that's mostly based on the type of creators that we work with. Okay, so you make plush toys. <laughs> that's not where yeah. I was. That's not where I was thinking. It's not where I was heading. And it's also it's also confusing to me that you've got influencers and video studios as your two. I'm I'm even rubbing my eyes trying to, to wrap my head around the model because you're gonna get you're gonna get me there to walk me through this even even deeper. By the way, what's interesting though about plush toys is I'm seeing that everyone who's launching seemingly launching NFTs seems to with NFT art on the art side. Mm-hmm seems to be doing something with the plush toys as well they're almost doing like a mm-hmm. you get a toy and the actual digital art piece yeah. was that was that somehow part of the tie-in here or no no that happened as a as a happy coincidence i i, I think that plush toys though have a interesting history in the markets um you know you have companies like beanie babies that grew tremendously yeah um as a result of of selling plush toys plush toys are very very personalized and, and very customized, uh, you know, but they're also extremely difficult to make, very high barrier of entry. So I think they have the right dynamics to have a starter product, to be a starter product for us. So who's, who, give me an example then of a specific, do you have a specific influencer or a video game company or something that, that is doing the plush toys and how are they doing it and for who, who's buying them? Yeah, I mean, I, there's many. We, we work mostly with, uh, I would call it kind of like the top 1% of influencers, but not the top 0.001%. So we, we don't work with like uh, maybe names that you might recognize um, unless maybe you're a fan of like Starcraft or Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. We um, we have worked with creators that either work in those worlds or, or with those companies themselves. We've worked with mm. Blizzard Activision, which is one of the largest uh, video game publishers in the world. Um, but we mostly work with like, you know, smaller creators. You're talking 100,000 to 500,000 subscribers types um that make relatively niche content but that's exactly that's exactly what we love about them ah. their audience really understands their characters and who they are um as opposed to the mainstream you know like the more mainstream you go um i would say it does dilute the fandom versus if you create extremely niche content then then you may get people that are very passionate about your content so i had a, i don't know if these two companies even exist anymore but mainframe entertainment or radical entertainment i think were two companies out of vancouver that did like video games and um and stuff more for kids it seems like you're even more niche than that where you're going into <laughs> yes uh we we work with very very hyper specific niches Again, I, I think that's where the internet is going too, though. Like if you think of TikTok, yeah. you can't even choose the content. The long tail is very, very big. Exactly. Every time you go down by a third, let's say from 100,000 to 30,000 subscribers, you multiply the amount of creators that are in that space by like six or seven fold. So, so yeah, m- most of the revenue and most of the creators are at the very top and everyone's fighting for them. And we said, why, why fight for that market when there's this like super interesting super passionate market right behind um, that we'd rather work with. And you're taking a percentage of revenue? Yeah, exactly. We take a percentage of revenue. So are you also then operating as a bit of a an affiliate marketing company for these <laughs> businesses as well, in a way? Uh, yeah, kind of in a way. Like if you look at what we did with Blizzard Activision, the, we, we, we're working with their intellectual property called StarCraft, which is a game I used to play as a kid. So I'm, I love that we're doing that. Um, when you look at that deal and what we did there, um, we didn't launch the plush toy exactly just with Blizzard. We launched it with one of one of the YouTubers that uses Blizzard IP called Carvot. 
So Carbon um, makes animations of uh, StarCraft characters, but you still need the StarCraft, obviously, license, so you kind of just do it. And that was kind of like an affiliate type deal because um, you have you have an extra player. You have Blizzard, you have the content creator, you have Makeship. So so there's, there's a little bit more interesting things there um, where we could potentially... Um, do deals with like large IP companies, and then any influencer that uses our IP could potentially work with us. Um, that's something that we're looking at, but normally we don't do affiliate. But it's it's a possibility, and and it's something that could be interesting. Well, and when I say affiliate, I mean it with the highest respect too. Like one of my former clients and a, one of the founding members of our COO Alliance, they do the affiliate marketing for Target and Uber mm-hmm. and Apple and. Yeah. Um, you know, affiliate marketing is just partnership marketing. It's performance based marketing. Exactly. It's just a I think it's been given a bad name when you think about Commission Junction and Linkshare and Be Free and places that did it in the schlocky way. Um, and I have another client of mine uh, called Giddy Up that does um, some pretty massive affiliate marketing where they take all the risk. But similar to kind of what you're doing, I just like the niche. How many employees have you guys got? Uh, we're close to 70, uh, 70. Um, we, we, again, we were like two people at the beginning of 2020. So it was quite a bit of growth. And again, we did all of that mostly without fundraising. We've, we fundraised the smallest amount just to get like some strategic people in. Um, but by no means, we, we're based on that. We're, we're, we're really focused on good unit economics. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the growth. And you've also mentioned crowdfunding two or three times. So I want to understand that. So why don't we t- start mm-hmm. with the crowdfunding and then we'll go into kind of the, the, you know, how you scale the business. Because growing from two to 70 people in, in two years is really rough. It's tough to do. Maybe yeah. it was easy for you guys. So on the crowdfunding side, how are you building that into your model and how are you leveraging and using crowdfunding? Yeah, so the 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 purpose, what's really interesting about us is that when we make a product, right? When we make a plus show, like the one I'm holding right now, um, we we make a single one. There's just one in the world. And we send that to the influencer. So this influencer has one out of one in the entire world. And that's all there is. Um, and that influencer shares with their audience what they what they design with us, um, and then they have 21 days to hit a target of at least 200 units. If they don't hit that, um, we refund everyone, and the one on one remains the one on one in the world. But if they pass 200 units, we manufacture whatever amount. You know, if if we make 372, we make 372. Ship 372 around the world. Um, give you a batch on your on your profile that tells you if you're like one out of 372 or number two, and that's all there is. And we don't make it again, um, at least at least not right now. So so that means that the creator created this like unique product, and it's gone. And we don't have inventory, and we don't function that. And then we we carbon offset um, the the production and the shipping of that product as well. And, and that's it. That's all. That's all that exists. It's hyper, hyper efficient. But what that allows us to do is grow like a software company because yeah. we get all the problem of a hardware company is that you're always making too little or too much of the product. You have to make it and then sell it, and we get all the money up front instead, and then we produce it. So we always know that we're going to be able to make it and hit the target. Okay. Are you, um, are you doing any of these plush toys for companies for brands at all? No. No, not right now. And I think that we're not a great model for them. Like, if you're mm-hmm. a ma- more mature company, you can really predict how many units you're going to sell. Yeah, and yeah, at yeah. that point, just make that. Yeah. Yeah. I like your model's really intriguing. It's funny. The reason I asked years ago at 1 800 Got Junk, we purchased a half a million 
uh, little miniature one eight hundred got junk trucks that we then gave out to all of our franchisees, and they gave out to all the little kids. And we didn't realize, like, do you know how much warehouse space a half a million trucks takes up? <laughs> we no have, idea. <laughs> neither it's did we. Lot. It was a full tractor trailer of of tiny little one inch by two inch trucks. That's a lot of trucks, man. It was crazy. Um, all right. So on the growth from two to seventy employees, yeah. How did you execute on that? What what mistakes did you make and learn along the way? What did you do well? It's actually really tricky, right? Because uh, at, at first, you're going to mind that, again, when you're like sub 10, everyone is kind of like doing a lot of different things. Um, and then eventually, you have to like specialize. Uh, there's some people that don't do well in specializing. There's some people that are very creative, but are very, not very good at managerial. So you have all these employees that are were really good before, and then... And then they were like out of the water or the opposite also happens where maybe maybe they felt a little bit uncomfortable before and then they they fit perfectly with their roles. But essentially, it's, it's not you're just not adding people. You're also changing the dynamics of, of each person, right? When, you, when you're 10 people, you can have a, a, a meeting where you meet everyone every morning and talk about what you're going to do that day. But obviously, you can't do that at 70 people. So I, I learned a lot of things about how to communicate. Um, I'm still learning those things. Um, learning a lot of things about how to how to create you know lattices around like what does it mean to be an executive or 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 a, a director because those words were kind of, are, are meaningless when you're like very few people but become increasingly important as you grow mm -hmm. um you learn how to uh properly share information that that's a tricky one that i didn't expect to get that hard but again at first when you have like three people um when you communicate to one person in the company and you're three people you communicate like you know uh, th those two people are like 70% of the communication already happened. But as you add more, more dots, there's more potential lines. Exactly. Yep. So there's no way that you can figure out what everyone is saying and what everyone's. So, so it's like, how do you control the information? How do you control where everyone is? So yeah, you have to think about like, how are people going to advance in their roles? Where, where are they best positioned? What, who do you need to hire? That gets super tricky too, because you're also hiring people that are better than you, obviously. So how, how, you know, when, when, how do you hire a software developer that is like 10 times or 100 times better than you? It's like, because anything you ask them is kind of like not, not super efficient. So you're hiring a lot of people that are better than you. That's super tricky. Um, you have to get a lot of advice from mentors. You have to ask a lot of people that grew those companies before you um, what to do. Because I, I don't know what you would do if you're the first one. Like, I have no idea how, again, going back to, you talked a little bit about Microsoft. Um, Microsoft and Apple grew at a time where there was not a lot of like venture capital is very new concept. So nobody had seen companies growing that quickly ever. I have no idea how they were able to perform because that, that to me is so insane um, yeah. because I rely so much on other people. You know, you, you, you talked about the sharing of information. I used to say that when there were two people talking, one person could talk to one, one could talk to the others, two forms of communication. When you add a third, it's six because you, exactly. you know, and then like it, so the complexity grows, as you mentioned. Exactly. What also starts to grow, though, is conflict, politics, the silos, the, the kind of turf wars. Are you getting to that stage now at the 70 people where you're having to grapple with? and Not or, too much. Not yet? Mm -hmm. we're, we're a little bit protected because the whole company is uh, um, remote. <laughs> mm -hmm. So so there's a lot of like, nasty interactions that just don't happen. Um, most most nasty interactions are because you can't get out of it <laughs> you know like like you're trapped and someone's pressuring you and, and making you react emotionally and, and that nasty situation may occur um those don't really happen online as much because you have a quick exit or you just don't join that 
So there's more passive ways to stop that. Um, so, but as a result, I think you're also less efficient as a company. So it's 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 a weird trade-off. Um, no, I I don't think that we've gotten too bad there, or maybe I, I'm just unfamiliar and unaware. Maybe it's happening all the time, and I don't know because I don't see it. I think I think there's might be a little bit of both, but I think you are right. I've never even considered that before, but you do have an out when you're online and conflict is there. You've got the rest of the day to decompress, and you don't see the jerk 17 more times in the office all day. You know he's not sitting yeah. or she's not sitting across from you or having lunch with you. That's really interesting, and I think you're very right on that. The the growth and building a remote team. I mean, the the days of that you know not happening are way behind us now. Everyone everyone's remote. We're all moving towards remote. Um, any lessons on because you built your entire company from from the beginning that way? Yeah. Any lessons on what you've done well and what you would would do differently in building the remote teams? Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts on remote just because I, again we. At the beginning of 2020, you really couldn't buy a book on like how to buy, build a super fast-growing startup remotely because people were still like going to San Francisco and it was like really, really important to be local to whatever tech scene you were part of and, and being very connected physically. Um, I think that I think that there's you have to be very careful about who you hire in terms of culture fit when you're working remote. Because I w- one of the ways that, you know, I, I don't know if you read uh, Ben Horowitz's book on culture. Hard but, thing about hard things. Uh, his next book um, was was on culture, um, but but one of the the definitions of culture is what do employees do when nobody's looking, <laughs> or 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 how do you act in gray areas, and and that's kind of key here when it comes to like remote um, remote hires. You have to you have to really nail who you hire, so you have to be extra 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 careful around the culture component because mm. you have to trust when people are at home, what they're doing, you know, we don't micromanage, but it's especially impossible to micromanage um, remotely. So uh, bad hires that we've done or, or, or bad decisions we've made were around like maybe having not focused enough on culture or not having described the position well enough, which again is very difficult when you're growing really quickly because you don't even know really what you need that much. Um, but yeah, I think, I think what I've learned is like be really, really specific about what the activity is and the person and be very specific about your culture and your culture fit and, and take your time. Say no to a lot of people, you know, like um, we, we, we say no to, to 99.5% of the people that, that want to work with us. So, so you just really want to get the 0.1 or 0.5% of, of applicants, if that. Um, and as a result, you have to be, you want to, you want to really put very strong um, culture fit um, guidelines or, 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 or rules, you know? Yeah. How, how have you um, funded the business to this point? Mostly through revenue. We did a tiny, tiny pre-seed just uh, again strategically um, to get really, really cool partners that we work with. But, you know, over 99% of, of the money in the, flowing into the company is revenue. So, wow. Yeah. That's, that's really, un, it's unheard of these days for a company. Especially for hardware companies. <laughs> yeah. That's smart. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about I mean, it, as you mentioned, it's really, really hard to build to make a plush toy at all, let yeah. alone to build an entire business around it where yeah. you're not even really sure. And you're only going to do it once. Yeah. Um, where are you manufacturing? And if it's if it's Asia, as I would guess, or, or yeah. um, how are you dealing with the complexities that COVID and shipping have thrown into us? How do you manage yeah. logistics? Yeah, I mean, that, that question could be an hour, right? Could, could be its own podcast. But um, long story short, my co-founder, um, he's Syrian, Syrian-Canadian. 
he decided he really wanted to learn Mandarin, so he moved to China for a year. Um, of course. Yeah, yeah, as as one would. Yeah. Um, he he stopped. Uh, he took a, a year of sabbatical off of uh, Queens, um, and then he decided to start a business where he would help help companies in the West manufacture products in China. Um, and he he's actually very fluent in Mandarin now. It's, it's very impressive. Um, and he started this company with uh, this other partner we have, uh, whose name is Kevin Wang Tao. And Wang Tao and him started a company called Rhino Manufacturing that manufactured a lot of products, including plush toys. And they learned, you know, by at first they would go visit factories and they would buy, they bought, you know, 500 umbrellas and they can sell a single one. And um, they were trying all these different like tactics to, to learn how to work with manufacturers and products and distribution and shipping. And, um, they learned a lot through that and they grew the company to like 30 people and, and make ship happened as a result of observing the, the the power influencers had with their audiences and and how many of them really couldn't afford to make products even though they had purchasing power you know it's it's what's interesting on influencers it's like they themselves couldn't couldn't get into inventory because again they don't know how many units they're going to sell and how it's going to perform but they do have an ability to perform mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. by by launching it as crowdfunding you can launch 100 campaigns and then the top 10 is, are going to perform extraordinarily well the, the influencers never expect that so in a way, we're kind of like venture capital in that way. But um, yeah, going back to your question about um, how to manufacture and all the problems with logistics. Yeah, you have to be constantly uh, looking at uh, how much fabric to buy and, and how much material to get. And it's, always, it's tricky. Like, there, there's, there's been some decisions that we had to get very clever at. For example, we, we, we started being able to have the ability to make glow-in-the-dark or, or use glow-in-the-dark fabric, but it's very expensive. They told me, Pablo, you have to buy at least like a kilometer squared of this material. Um, and it's going to be very expensive. So like $10,000. And we're not that big. So yeah. I'm like, oh, shit, what do we do? So we decided, okay, what if all our influencers want to repeat their product all the time? Because we never make it again. And they're like, Pablo, I want to make it again. I'm like, ah, it has to be slightly different. So I called our top 10 influencers. And I said, listen, I'm going to launch this event where all of you are going to use glow-in-the-dark fabric. And you get to repeat the design that you had before. Um, and a lot of them committed to that. So I was able to buy the kilometer squared and then launch the product. And that was very successful. And again, because we don't, uh, uh, we only launched the product as a crowdfunding campaign. I didn't have to buy that material ever again until the next year. So something that protects us is buying the material, using it, and then the product is gone. Right. So, so, so again, part, our model protects us a little bit from that. But, you know, in terms of shipping, we've increased our prices tremendously because shipping has gone, it's crazy. It's very, very expensive. I, I have a feeling you're going to blow my mind here in a second. But when these influencers are selling these plush toys, what's the average target price they're selling something for? So, I mean, the average price, we, we sell our products on average, I think $28.99 is our average price. Okay. Um, and the average campaign probably makes about $30,000 or something like that in terms of total revenue. So it's really not big. No, no, it's not. It's, 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 it's very small. It's the long tail is just really big. Exactly. It's super, we, super intriguing. What's, what's nuts about Makeship right now is that we're producing, you know, a thousand products with a, with a company of 70 people. We produce more than 10 products per person in the company. Yeah. So we have do to be extremely good at designing. Do you need to scale the team at this point or can you operate with, you know, the team you have and just scale now from there? You know, WhatsApp, I think, sold for $1.8 billion with 55 people. Exactly. It's like, how, how can we separate our, our growth from our uh, expenses? Yeah. 
that that's that's the next stage for makeship it's like because we're about to go to even smaller creators than the ones we work with which we work you know around 50,000 subscribers is probably around the smallest size we work with and we're about to go down to 25,000 so even more volume even more campaigns even more designs and how do you do that without hiring a million people um just to keep costs um afloat yeah the, the answer a lot of that is like extremely good pipelines and technology and libraries you know you don't want to redesign the wheel so if you already made a, a product you have to like really keep track of that product so that you can grab elements from it in the future or something like that um yeah yeah that's the next stage for us is we want to be able to to double or triple uh without significantly growing employee count um probably adding another 50 percent of people to add another 200 percent of revenue so yeah I, the answer right now is technology and the, the work has to be done so either the yeah. work has to be done by you by computers or by your customers you know like self-onboarding and like clicking so we're we're gonna use all the all the tricks in the book. So you optimize your own work. Make sure that you're only doing the things that you have to do. Um, pass to your customers some of the work. You know, like they have to fill out their name. Like the, things like that are are actually crucial. Sure. Um, and make sure you're relying on technology and computers. Yeah, technology and computers for sure. So last last question before we wrap, um, or second last question before we wrap. Are you doing any work with Gary Vaynerchuk and the V Friends with all of their like doing little? Uh, could you <laughs> could you do plus toys for each of the V Friends that he's got? Uh, I mean, probably. I, I don't have the contact, but if you have it, I would be happy to to talk to him. I'll I'll introduce you to um, his former second in command, Philip Orsino. Is uh, not Philip Orsino. I'll introduce you to his former COO. Is um, a guest on our second in command podcast. We had. Uh, I'll do an intro, but Thank I you. think there could be something intriguing there, where everyone who owns a V friend or whatever it is, could, they could have like a limited edition of those get sold. Could be really super cool. Yeah, we, we've seen that a lot and, and we've tried that model. Yeah, absolutely. Th those work really well for us. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, I'll do that. I want to go back to the 21-year-old, 22-year-old Pablo. You're graduating from um, from Waterloo in Canada and you're going to start off on your business career. What advice would you give the 21 or 22-year-old that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? I, I think going back to the, your first question, actually, which is like, I, I wish I, wish, uh, I was stricter about product market fit and as a result i was more confident to say no to to bad customers i wish i wish i was better at iterating product so i could find product market fit because once you'd really hit product market fit the dynamics change completely um instead of trying to like bend my my back backwards um in in going one direction which again it's it's useful to some degree to really figure the customer but if you're going too specific you're not going to capture more customers at volume so i i think that that lesson took me took me too many years. <laughs> you just got to make it easier for them to say yes. Exactly. Make it easier for them to say yes. Pablo Edo, the COO and co-founder for Makeship. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Plan podcast. Thank you so much, Cameron. Have a nice day. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.